Well, good morning and happy Sabbath, everyone. And to all the um, women in the room, a happy International Women's Day for this last week. And uh, woo-woo! <laughs> That's true. We would not be here without you. Someone asked me, where is your floral print? Where is your celebration of, um, I guess, femininity? <laughs> is that the right word? Femininity? And I didn't say anything back then, but I will say something. I will respond to it now. I'm breaking the mold of femininity, or what it means to be feminine and masculine, and hence my checkered red uh, tie. Actually, I, there was no thought at all. I was like, ah, I'm just going to wear this tie. <laughs> but happy International Women's Day. Um, you'll notice, um, for those of you who are a bit more regular to our church, there are a handful of us that have these little name tags here. Uh, I fully recognize we probably look like Mormon missionaries. <laughs> where it's like, welcome to our church. <laughs> but actually, that's not how they are. Forgive that comment. <laughs> that was terrible. Anyway, um, these name tags are here so that for those of you who are visiting us um, for the first time and you're getting used to our church, if you have questions about uh, where the toilets are and or if you just have any questions about our church, you can come up to us. And um, it's supposed to break down barriers where you can just call us by our name because sometimes you forget the person's first name. It's like, I want to talk to you. I don't remember your name. These name tags are here so that you can just come up to us and freely just have a chat with us. Um, so today's topic is making the most of God's forgiveness, making the most of God's forgiveness. Um, I'll just invite you to join me for prayer and, um, we'll begin. Father God, we want to come before you this morning and, um, Father, we are a people who are in need of mercy. We're in need of grace, and uh, we're in need of understanding and experiencing and encountering your presence. And so I just pray that for this next moment that your presence would be here, that your presence would be felt, um, that those sitting here and that those watching online um, would really be able to connect with you in these next moments and give encouragement for the week. We pray this in your name. Amen. Can you think back to a time when you were given a chance, where you were given an incredible opportunity, where you felt, oh, I'm just not quite sure if I'm really worthy of this, but I'm going to make the most of what I've been given. I remember back in 2005, bridging 2006, I first came to Melbourne, Australia as a Bible worker, and I was kind of... Um, Fresh off the airplane, coming into this new country, getting used to um, a new way of life, getting used to kilos versus pounds. That was a, that was a big adjustment, especially in the grocery store, uh, coming to the fruit section and going, oh, wow, this isn't too bad. And then realizing it's per kilo <laughs> and realizing, man, this is really expensive. Um, making those adjustments and for that whole year, struggling struggling to connect with different people, struggling with the cultural barrier, there is this massive barrier between the U.S. and Australia. And getting accustomed to that was just, it took forever. It felt like it took forever. And coming at the end of that year thinking, oh, that was that was difficult. And then um, the leaders of the church that I was working with uh, approached me and said, hey, Roy, we love the work that you did. How do you feel about coming back next year? There are going to be 17 other Bible workers just like yourself, and we need somebody to coordinate that group. And I remember deeply feeling 
inadequate and, and unworthy and thinking, oh, what am I going to do for next year? And I thought, what an incredible opportunity. And I remember just because the group was so, so supportive, I really gave it my heart. I gave it my all. And it was probably one of the uh, defining movement, uh, moments of developing in ministry. And uh, I really fondly look back at that time. I look back at that time quite fondly. So today I want to talk about how God's forgiveness is really an opportunity when realized and it unlocks a world of potential. So I'll invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open to Hebrews chapter 10 and we're going to go through scripture together. Hebrews chapter 10. And while you're turning there, I just want to um, bring attention to the great work that uh, Diana has been doing at our church. She is our current Bible worker. And um, really, these uh, name tags came from her idea. And I'm looking behind the podium, and like each speaker has like a nice little box of uh, this bottled water and, and candies and mints for after you're done preaching. And when you have to talk to people, this is wonderful. So, Diana, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, give her, give her a round of applause. So Hebrews chapter 10, for those of you who are still turning there, it's page 970, 970. And we're going to start in verse 12. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to jump around through the passage and just highlight certain verses. Um, and I've just kind of selected the... Uh, what I thought were the important verses, of course, I invite you to go back afterwards and you can read through the chapter or these chapters um, on your own afterwards if you feel so inclined. So we're going to read Hebrews chapter 10 and we're going to start in verse 12. So here we go. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. Jumping to verse 14. For by that one offering he made forever, or he forever made perfect, those who are being made holy. And so summary of this verse is that Jesus made it so that every person who makes a decision, God, I want to follow you. I want to embark on this journey of uh, knowing what it means to follow you and know you. God made it so that each and every person embarking on that journey are seen as pure. And the Bible uses that word perfect. In other words, God looks at us with all of our faults, with all of our uh, inadequacy, and he sees purity. We continue on verse 16 and 17. This is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. You know, when God gives this promise that he'll change the heart, there's this incredible thing that's being mentioned here because anybody can change their habits but nobody can change their heart. When I think of people who put themselves through rigorous discipline and through uh, difficulty, I think of Olympians because you are sacrificing your whole life. You're putting everything on hold, your friends, your family, your career, and you're just focusing on this one action for this one moment of time so that your name can be remembered forever. And um, 
What's interesting to me is that during that time, they are so disciplined and they change their habits, their eating habits, their exercise habits, everything that they do changes. But what's really interesting to me is after the Olympics are finished, what they do at their time then. And often, well, I shouldn't say oftentimes, there are moments where famous individuals end up on the news for infamy rather than goodness, because you can't change your heart, but you can change your habits. And here in scripture, the Bible says that God will change the hearts. What I love about this is that not only are those who decide to follow Jesus seen as pure in that moment, but God says in the course of their lives, he looks back and he says, I will remember their sins no more. And it's as if there's this ongoing, um, ongoing expectation where God gives us the benefit of the doubt. Expectation was a wrong word, but God continues to give us the benefit of the doubt. And there's this incredible, incredible promise. If we continue on in verse 22, it continues the thought. Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. You know, when I read this passage, it fills me with so much hope. It tells me that I can go right into the presence of God without fear. I don't have to worry that he's going to think any less of me, and it brings out this world of potential where I think, God, I can actually do whatever it is that you are calling me to do. I don't have to worry about what my mistakes mean. Now, with that in mind, if you continue on to verse 26 and 27, then something puzzling occurs. And we'll read this passage. Verses 26 and 27. The author writes, Dear friends, If we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, verse 26 and 27 kind of undo everything that we just read. Like the first half of the passage, I think to myself, wow, what great hope. I can have a new identity in Christ. And then when I read verses 26 and 27, I kind of think, wait, if I continue sinning deliberately, there's no forgiveness. Well, which is it? Am I forgiven or am I not forgiven? What I want to do is go into the word deliberate. Because the text says, if you deliberately sin, there is no forgiveness for you. There's this fancy book called Thayer's Greek Lexicon. Let's see if I can get this to work. Thayer's Greek Lexicon. And lexicon is just a fancy word for a book on words. So here's what the lexicon says. It says, To sin willfully as opposed to sins committed inconsiderately and from ignorance or from weakness. So the word willingly is used in one other place in the Bible, and I feel like that one usage of the word willingly or deliberately gives us a bit more understanding of what it means to sin deliberately. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, it says here, Care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. And here's Peter speaking to the audience. 
Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you will get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. So this passage is saying, watch over the flock willingly. Be in a good mental, spiritual headspace and be willing to give of yourself, not for yourself. So if you take this word and you apply it to this idea of sin, sin committed from weakness is not considered deliberate sin. For example, when you're addicted to a habit or when you just struggle with something and you just feel like you have no control over it. Another example would be when you're learning and growing and you make mistakes along the way on your journey, God understands those mistakes and he doesn't consider them to be deliberate sin. But what is considered deliberate sin is when someone is, when someone is in a place of strength, a place of maturity, where there are no questions about the will of God. And truth is already in the heart. To step away from God's will and to act selfishly is inconsistent with what grace stands for. In all of scripture, I find one example of someone being in this position. And that individual is Lucifer. Lucifer is considered this perfect angelic being who stands in the very presence of God. There's no lack of knowledge There is no ignorance and there's no lack of holiness in him. And yet he chooses selfishness over God. So in Ezekiel 28, it reads, You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. You were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. Your rich commerce led you to violence and you sinned. So I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. So here's an example. A perfect angelic being who lacks no wisdom, no knowledge. He is constantly in the presence of God. And he willfully chooses, I'm going to live for myself. As opposed, in, uh, as opposed to in obedience to God's will. And, and then he is banished. And there isn't forgiveness for this individual. As you read through scripture, there isn't a single verse that talks about God then after this moment reaching out and saying, come back. Now in contrast to that, when you look at another example in the Bible that's given, Adam and Eve, these two individuals are also created perfect They also encountered the very presence of God. They also had a knowledge of uh, the love and the perfection that exists in God himself. And they enjoyed his presence. But what I find interesting about this example is that they are given a second chance. Adam and Eve eat the fruit. They disobey. Yes, they are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. But then God reaches out in mercy and provides, uh, uh, provides redemption for them. And so the point in this part of the passage in Hebrews chapter 10 is that there is an incredible amount of mercy given by God to his creation. But that mercy is not designed to perpetuate selfishness. It's designed to motivate hope and healing. And so what's being highlighted here is that the author is saying there are examples where people would take advantage of that grace. They would take advantage of that mercy for their own own interests and never want to follow 
obey, submit to God. And he's highlighting here that the, pers- the, the purpose of mercy is to motivate hope and healing as opposed to perpetuate selfishness. So let's go back and read verses 23 to 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. And I believe that this is kind of the application of this concept. And I've read this passage out of context because I believe the application is found in this verse uh, these verses, and it just made a bit more sense to put it here in this part of the uh, part of the talk. So, verses twenty three to twenty five, the results of forgiveness in Christ. Twenty three reads: Let us hold tightly, without wavering, to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep His promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love. And good works, and let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Forgiveness has the power to give us confidence in our walk with God. Forgiveness also has the power to change the way that we interact with one another. I love how it says, instead of looking at one another's faults, Forgiveness gives us creative ways to motivate goodness and love in one another. Let us think of ways to motivate each other in those ways. That's what the text says. In Hebrews 11, the following chapter, there's this famous chapter called the Hall of Faith. And it's an example of a bunch of people who respond to God's forgiveness and the actions that they do. And for me, what's really interesting about reading through this chapter is God's own perception of these individuals who did great things for him. And so I just want to go through a a bit of this chapter. So if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, the first example that I'd like to look at is the example of Sarah, which is found in verse 11. And that's page 972. So here's what the verse says. Verse 11. It was by faith that even Sarah was able to have a child. Though she was barren and was too old, she believed that God would keep his promise. So here's this example of an individual in the hall of faith. But notice when God inspires the author of Hebrews to write these words, there's something really important that's missing in this story. For me, a picture tells a thousand words. But there's that one instance where Sarah goes to Abraham and says, Hey, honey, we've tried so long to have this child together. And it just doesn't seem to be working. So why don't you take my servant Hagar and you marry Hagar? Now notice when you read through, and you can read through the whole of chapter 11, and this is not mentioned. But what is mentioned is Sarah's faithfulness and that's incredible to me because when god remembers his people he literally forgets the wrong that they have done and he highlights the good that they have done here's the next example the example is moses if you look at verse 24 it says it was by faith that moses when he grew up refused to be called the son of pharaoh's daughter He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. Once again, highlights Moses' 
zeal for doing what's right, and he flees Egypt, and he frees God's people. But what is not mentioned is the fact that Moses actually murdered an Egyptian, and rather than faithfully trusting that God would do his part, he kind of took the matter into his own hands and thought, I'm going to free Israel my way. You read through chapter 11, not mentioned at all. If we jump down to verse 32, there's a whole string of names that are mentioned here. This is almost the conclusion of chapter 11, starting from verse 32. How much more do I need to say? I would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Samson Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouth of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Man, it, such incredible words that are given to such a group of sinners <laughs> when I look at this. And that just goes to show the difference between how, my, how I read this story and how God tells this story. I think of Gideon, who was an idolater at the end of his time as judge. I think of Samson, who was a complete womanizer, and he's quite petty when you read through the whole story in the book of Judges. I think of David, who was also a womanizer and a murderer. And what I can't get over, well, not what I can't get over, but what I find so interesting is that the faults of all these people are not mentioned. And the point is this. God doesn't allow their faults to keep them from doing good. When God sees his people, he just he doesn't let their mistakes keep them back from what they could do for him. There's a modern day example of this being played out. There's an article that was published by NPR. And the article is called, Teachers' Expectations Can Influence How Students Perform. And I highly recommend that you read this article because it's really, really interesting. Um, there are often times where I'll hear stories um, shared in sermons, and I often ask myself, is that true? And um, there's this one case where I just kind of Googled the story, and I was like, oh, far out. The real story is actually better than the way that the preacher actually presented it. And so I want to share... Um, the story that actually took place. And some of you may even be familiar with this story. But in 1964, a, a psychology professor from Harvard by the name of Robert Rosenthal did an experiment on expectations. And I'm not going to lie, the first time I read Rosenthal, I did think of Rosenberg. I was like, oh, Ben! <laughs> but there's a psychology professor from Harvard by the name of Robert Rosenthal. And he did this experiment on expectations, and the idea was to figure out what would happen if teachers were told that certain kids in their class were destined to succeed. So Rosenthal took a normal IQ test, and he dressed it up differently. In other words, he changed the title of the test, and here's what he called it. He printed on every test booklet, Harvard Test of Inflected Acquisition. Oh, that sounds very, very official. So Rosenthal told the teachers, this very special test from Harvard had the ability to predict which students were about to be very special. 
And so after the kids took the test, he then chose from every class several children totally at random. But he told their teachers that this test predicted that these kids were on the verge of intense intellectual bloom. So as he followed the children over the next two years, this is what he found. He discovered that the teacher's expectations of these kids really did affect the students. If the teachers had been led to expect greater gains in IQ, then increasingly those kids gained more IQ as he tested them over the two-year period. So the question is, how then do our expectations, or how then did the teachers' expectations influence the IQ of the students? So Rosenthal did more research, and he found that expectations affect teachers' moment-to-moment interactions with the children they teach in almost a thousand invisible ways. See, teachers give the students they expect to succeed more time to answer questions, more specific feedback, more approval. They consistently touch, nod, or smile at those kids more. You know, when you think of all the social, racial, gender biases that take place in the world today, this is such a powerful, powerful bit of research. Here's what Rosenthal says. He says, it's not magic. It's not mental telepathy. It's very likely these thousands of different ways of treating people in small ways every day changes the way that those individuals behave. You know, the article continues on where they tried then changing the teacher's behavior of how they interact with students. And what they said is, it is impossible to tell teachers to change their expectation because of their own biases. It is impossible until they go through a special set of training. And so the training consisted of two different streams. One was going through a training course on biases. The second stream was actually video recording every single class that the teachers taught and assigning a coach to that teacher. And that coach would sit down with the teacher and go through how they could then change the way that they interacted with specific students. And I thought it was so interesting. And what they found is that the practical application of giving the teacher a coach was more effective than putting them through a training course. And what they're saying is, look, it's actually easier to change biases by changing behavior before you change the heart. And that's really interesting because from a church perspective, we share with the church, pastors share with the church at all times, you're forgiven. God forgives you. God forgives you. But unless we actually go through those moment by moment situations and people are able to experience forgiveness in the moment to moment or the day to day, that change of bias cannot occur. See, that's the difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. So today, I want to share with you, we have this bias that we are sinners, that we are flawed human beings. And there's this potential that can be unlocked if we can see God as a forgiving God. You know, we can unlock potential in one another as we see each other as faithful followers of Christ. As if, we, if we can look at each other and see what could be, imagine what this community of faith could become. So today, I encourage you to practice faith. Practice thinking, God, there's forgiveness with you. 
I encourage you to practice action. God, I am forgiven. So for this moment, while I feel inadequate, I'm going to act as if I'm forgiven. May you experience a new birth. May you experience the power and the love of Christ as you do this, as you practice this in your lives. Would you join me for prayer? Father God, as we consider your word, as we consider who you are, please unlock in our hearts that potential of goodness and love. May we make the most of your forgiveness, and may we experience you as a personal God. We pray this in your name. Amen.